You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Well, good morning again, and peace be with you. Uh, for those of you who weren't here at the beginning of the gathering, uh, my name is Cole. I'm one of the pastors here. It is uh, good to be with you this morning. Um, I have a one plug that I want to make before we jump in, and that is that on Wednesday of this week, uh, we begin the season of Lent uh, with Ash Wednesday, and we'll have an Ash Wednesday gathering here at, at 7.30 p.m. on Wednesday. Uh, for those who maybe are less familiar, the season of Lent is uh, 40 days plus seven Sundays leading up to Easter, in which the church has historically devoted um, itself to prayer and fasting and repentance as we prepare to celebrate uh, the resurrection of our Lord and, and the full host of celebration that comes along with that. And so Ash Wednesday is a gathering in which we reflect upon our sin and our mortality um, and that apart from the work of Christ on our behalf, uh, we are nothing but dust and to dust we shall return. Um, and yet there is good news that we gladly await in the season of Lent as we prepare for Easter. And so if you're interested in joining us on seven, at 7.30 on Wednesday, we'd love to have you for that. Um, as Ms. Kelly read for us, we are in the Gospel of Luke this morning, um, verses 7 through 14. And we've been looking at, at the Gospel of Luke over the past couple of months and specifically looking at passages in Luke that are unique to Luke's Gospel, meaning that within the four Gospels in the New Testament, there, there is some common material that, that three or, or two or sometimes all four of the, the authors of the gospel will, will talk about. And so we're just looking at passages in Luke that, that only Luke wrote about. Um, and, and yet, while this is a unique passage that we don't see anywhere else in the scripture, uh, the fundamental concept of, of the passage today is not unique at all. It's actually probably one of the most tried and true ethical doctrines of the Bible, uh, one that we've discussed a lot here at Sojourn Montrose, and, and the principle in this is this upside-down nature of the kingdom of God in that humility is the way to exaltation, and that self-exaltation is the way to ruin. Um, and so within this text, um, there is a simple and yet challenging call to humility, and so let's humble ourselves before the Lord together in prayer, and then see what his word might have for us. Father, we come to you, the people of your creation. Apart from you, we not only do not exist, but, but we lack any means or merit on our own that we might be glorious or honorable. I pray that as we look at your word this morning that you would display to us the, the radical nature of your love toward us, the overwhelming expanse of your glory, of your majesty, and would you align our hearts with your will, that we might leave today a people more ready to serve you, a, a people who delight 
in you and your promises more than we did this morning than when we came in, and, and a people ready to give of ourselves to others and to your kingdom, regardless of the cost, that you might receive glory and that we might experience the joy of participating with you in redemption forever. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So in Luke 14, in this passage this morning, the setting is that Jesus is at a dinner party on the Sabbath, and he's been invited into the home of what the beginning of the passage says is a ruler of the Pharisees, right? So this is a religious bigwig in ancient Israel. Um, and, and the party, it seems, is primarily, if not exclusively, made up of of Pharisees and lawyers, which is a term that Luke uses to describe scholars of the Old Testament, of the Jewish law. And so there's all of these religious elites who have invited Jesus, who's this increasingly famous teacher leading this movement that they're all really concerned about, to come and have dinner with them on the Sabbath. And it says at the beginning of the chapter that they're all watching Jesus carefully. Because they're skeptical of Jesus. They're skeptical of his ministry. They're threatened by his increasing popularity. They are deeply concerned about the ways that he observes Jewish law, particularly Sabbath keeping, uh, which they've built a lot of extra uh, understandings of what it means to observe the Sabbath that are, that are apart from just what's in the Old Testament. And, and, and Jesus has been doing healings and good works on the Sabbath, and, and they've been accusing him of being a Sabbath breaker, which is, uh, outside of idolatry, is about the highest form of, of heresy or disobedience that you could be accused of in ancient Israel. And, and they've brought him to this dinner, and it looks like what they're trying to do is is lay traps for Jesus. They're trying to get him to slip up, to say something that, that would put him to shame, to do something that they could accuse him of so that his ministry would be brought to ruin or maybe he would be brought to trial or maybe they would even have reason to put him to death. But what happens in the first six verses of this chapter is that the traps they lay for Jesus, he responds with truth and with cleverness so that now the Pharisees are the ones who are unable to answer Jesus. And then we get to verse 7. And it says, Now he told a parable to those who were invited, when he noticed how they chose places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come to you and say, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about how any parable in which Jesus is using wedding feast analogy, he's talking about the eternal kingdom of God and how it is an eternal wedding feast where God is the, the heavenly husband who has invited his people to be his bride. But he says at the beginning, he noticed how they chose places of honor. This sets up the whole parable, really, especially given his audience. 
And it echoes a passage from chapter 11 of Luke in which Jesus notices that the Pharisees, when they would go into synagogues, they expected to be given the most honorable seat in the synagogue. But why do they expect honor? Well, because they're law keepers, they're teachers, they're educators, they're holy, they're guides to the people of Israel. They are the best of the best. They are the religious elite. So they should sit in the front row. They should sit near the host at a party. They should be served and be lauded. But Jesus says in this parable quite the opposite. In this parable, he accuses the Pharisees of being presumptuous, of being arrogant, of being self-important and self-righteous. And he warns them in this parable that if you think you are great in the eyes of God and in his kingdom because of your perceived righteousness, knowledge, wisdom, then you're in for a rude awakening. He says, because in the kingdom of God, the humble will be the ones given places of honor. And you arrogant Pharisees, will experience the shame of being asked to give your seat to another. The the thesis of this parable is obviously the final statement, right? When Jesus says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And this is a well-established biblical principle. This isn't something that Jesus just like made up this, this evening at dinner. Hannah referenced this principle in her famous prayer in 1 Samuel. The Proverbs reference it over and over. The prophets uh, they, they reference this principle. And here, Jesus is solidifying it, that God is not impressed with the proud. He's not impressed with the powerful. He's not impressed with those who have great resumes because God is about his glory, which is established and made known through his love and his justice and his power being revealed to the world through his will. And for those who are concerned with their glory, God is going to humble them. It's, it's, not, it's not just a principle that, that like we can think sometimes the proud will be humbled. God is saying this is a promise. The proud will be humbled. There is no place in the kingdom of God for the kingdom of others. There's just no place in the kingdom of God for the kingdom of others which seek the glory of others because kingdoms are always seeking the glory of someone or some group of people and in God's kingdom, he's the one who gets the glory. So the Pharisees who are perverting concepts of holiness and righteousness in order to establish a functional kingdom in which they are the honored ones, They're in need of this rebuke and warning from Jesus. Jesus is lovingly rebuking them and warning them because he's saying that it's going to lead to their ruin. He says that humility is the key to exaltation in the kingdom of God. In Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that the meek shall inherit the earth, that the poor in spirit are the blessed ones, that the proud will be humbled. Jesus further makes his point in verses 12 through 14. And it says, he, he said to the man who had invited him. So he's looking at the host and he says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, 
and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. He he looks at the host and, and says, you've got it all wrong. You've got this all wrong. You've invited a bunch of people who can serve you and your interests and who have the ability to repay you. And that's true. The man who hosted this party, he's invited his friends. He's invited brothers and relatives. He's invited rich neighbors. He's invited religious leaders. And even in inviting Jesus, who's an increasingly famous figure in first century Israel, he's invited a bunch of people who either have the social or financial means to offer something in return to this man. And we have to ask ourselves, is this teaching a prescriptive teaching from Jesus, right? Is Jesus saying to all people in all circumstances at all times, don't have a dinner party where you invite your friends. Never invite someone into your home who might be able to repay you. No, like that is not what Jesus is saying. That would be inconsistent with really a lot of of what the scriptures say about the sort of family and community that God is building through his people, about the sort of hospitality God desires for his people to show one another. But instead, what Jesus is doing through this parable is he's drawing a line. And he's drawing a line between the kingdom he is establishing in his ministry and the kind of kingdom that the Pharisees are perpetuating. The kingdom Jesus has come to establish is a kingdom in which outsiders are invited in. Sinners are made righteous participants. The poor are made heirs to the throne. The blind are given sight. The lame are made to dance. The salvation that Jesus provides is that God is offering grace, forgiveness, and endless belonging in his household as what the Apostle Paul calls a free gift. Right? So all of your sins forgiven by the blood of Christ, all of your needs met by the power of God, all of your fears relieved by the promises of God. So the salvation that Jesus has come to establish in his kingdom is an invitation to an endless feast at the table of the heavenly and eternal king. And this is the sort of feast that if you're invited, you will never be able to repay. Like nobody who is feasting in the kingdom of God has anything to offer God in return that they might repay him. Jesus is telling the Pharisees about the kind of banquet he is preparing. He's inviting them to join him in this sort of mindset. It's not about the specific dinner. It's not about who the Pharisees have invited this evening in the dinner. It's about a heart that is postured toward the loving service of others and and, in the kindness, in a desire to show the kindness of both God and men. Right, right. The thing that all people need is to receive the kindness of God and the kindness of God. Of, of others, and, and Jesus is inviting us to develop a heart posture that, that is oriented toward that at all times, where our desire is to serve others, that they might experience kindness and love, both from us and the kindness and love of God. Elsewhere, Jesus says, he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Right, This is an invitation to give up our rights, our desires, so that we might find life in the ways of life that Jesus has called us in. Here he says that if you commit to a life of sacrificial love, what does he say in verse 14? That you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Right? In your life, maybe nobody will be able to repay you for the sacrifice you provide. Maybe nobody will ever be able to love you in the, in the ways that, that you are offering love. Maybe the ways that you are invited to, to endure sufferings with Christ, you'll never receive 
recompense in your life, but there will be a time in which you are repaid because you'll be given a seat of honor in God's kingdom. The Pharisees are rebuked by Jesus because of their desire for their own glory, their their own honor. They wanted to be lauded. They wanted to be impressive. They wanted to be praised. They wanted people to consider them more highly than themselves. And, And here's the problem that we established earlier, that there's only one king in the kingdom of God, right? There's only one king in the kingdom of God, and the seat of honor is given to him. The glory is given to him. He's the one to be lauded. He is the impressive one. He's the one worthy of glory and honor and praise, which the angels are singing at all times in the heavenly places. And his name is Jesus, right? It's not Cole. It's not your name. And although there are ways in which all of our hearts desire to be lauded, to be praised, to be impressive, for other people to give us honor, what Christ is inviting us to is to lay down those desires, lay down those rights. Paul says he's the one who's received the crown of glory. He's the one who's been given the name above all names. And he's been given these things not on accident and and, and not just because he's God, but he's been given these things, Paul says in Philippians 2, because he participated in a specific type of ministry marked by obedience and service in humility. Hear this from Philippians 2, 2 through 11. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Right, so we can have this mind, it's ours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, Paul says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the way to exaltation for Christ was actually abandoning all of his majesty. It was giving up all of his glory, all of his rights that he had eternally in the heavenly places as the creator of the universe in order to be a servant of others, an obedient son, and a sacrificial savior, even unto excruciating death on our behalf. Paul says, therefore, because he's done those things, God has highly exalted him. Because he has done those things, he's been given the name above every name. So if we want to experience the honor of God, the glory of God, then then we must follow Christ into death. We must follow Christ into death. We're called by God to die to ourselves, to serve others, to give up our desires for self-gratification and and our desires for honor. This is the essence of godly humility. And it's, it's this call to lay down our rights in service of God and others, to be truly loving, which is to seek the good of others and to seek the glory of God. And so there's no room for your ego in the kingdom of God. There's no room for your glory in the kingdom of God. There's no room for praises to be offered unto you in the kingdom of God because Jesus has the name above every name. He's the king. 
Now, we have to reckon with this because Christ isn't calling us to humility because he's intimidated by our potential for glory, right? Like, God isn't afraid that we're going to outshine him, and so he calls us to be humble. Nor does God want to rob us of a life of fulfillment, right? God doesn't want us to be miserable. He's not calling us to be humble and sacrificial because he wants us to be miserable. Quite the contrary. The, The reality is that since God is, of all people and things in the universe, the most good, the most holy, the most righteous, the most lovely, then it stands to reason that we should direct our lives toward his receiving honor and glory. Like, that's the logical response if we understand the majesty of God is that, oh, we should orient ourselves toward him. Furthermore, if he, through the incarnate son, Jesus, has demonstrated that the best way to live, the ultimately good and beautiful way to live, is through a radically humble life of service and sacrifice for others, then we would do well to follow God's lead in the way that human life should operate. Right? Like if, if God himself had a chance to live as a human and he lived in service to others, in radical humility, in sacrifice for others, then it would stand to reason that that would be the best way for us to live, right? And like, that's what God has shown us. And finally, if we understand the gravity of what God has done for us in Christ, if we understand the, the overwhelming beauty and love and grace that God has offered us, then humility and giving up everything that we have that we could claim a right to, anything that might get in the way of us serving God, it it becomes the only response. It becomes the natural disposition of the heart that has been in tune to the gospel of Christ. So, So brothers and sisters, the scriptures say we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God's made us alive, right? That's good news. We were filthy and unrighteous, but Christ has cleansed us by his blood. That's good news. We were guilty. Christ has absolved us. We were destined for eternal death. Christ has saved us. We were destitute and orphaned, alienated from the commonwealth and kindness of God and protection of God's household, God has adopted us. We were weak to overcome our sinful desires, foolish in our thinking, prone to rebellion and bearing no fruit. And yet Christ has poured out his spirit upon us to give us victory over temptation, wisdom beyond our faculties, loving guidance to keep us in the light of God's love at all times. And so if these things are true, then why would we ever seek our own honor? Right? Like if these things are true, why would we not orient our lives toward God at all times? Why would we not want to give him everything? Why would we not want to serve him in every way if he has provided us with these precious and eternal gifts that we could never gain on our own that are more beautiful, the scriptures say, than, than, than gold, even refined and precious gold? Why wouldn't we naturally just lay at the feet of God our King in gratitude and worship and awe and just give him everything? Why wouldn't we follow him into obedience and service and humility? Well, here's the thing. If you're a Christian in the room, we have. We've done that, not perfectly, 
Like we, we, there are opportunities for us to repent and grow in this, but for those of you who have come to Christ in faith, you have done that. Galatians 2.20, Paul talks about what, like the essence of, of being a Christian. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Right, so, so there's one way to enter into the glory of the kingdom of God, and it's death. First, the death of Christ on our behalf, which, which purchases our interest, and then the death of our old selves. We die, with, we die to sin with Christ who died for our sin. Right? Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. We die to the unrighteous, self-absorbed, glory-thieving versions of ourselves. And we do this in faith so that we might join Christ in the resurrected life forever. This is the story that's being told in your baptism, which which is not just a one-time event that marks your interest into the church. It's actually a lifelong sign and seal of the reality that you've joined Christ with him in his death and have been made new and alive with him in his resurrection, right? And so, so when you're tempted to live for your own glory, remember your baptism and say, no, I've, I've died with Christ. I've been buried with him. I've been raised with him. His life, my life is his, so we live our earthly lives unto the ministry of Christ's death through serving others, through submitting to the will of God, even at the expense of our own glory and at times our own happiness so that we might join Paul in Philippians 3 who said that he looked at everything the world had to offer. He looked at his resume, which is far more impressive than mine and likely yours, and he said that he considered it to be garbage in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and, and joining him in the ministry of service and sacrifice and suffering that by any means possible, he said, he might obtain the resurrection of the dead. Let's have that mindset. See, in the kingdom of God, true life is found in considering ourselves lower than others so that they might see the beauty and love of God for them in our humility and service toward them. So we can do this out of the overwhelming security that God has loved us fully, approves of us always, and has prepared a place for us in a household forever. So to live the way Christ is inviting us to live apart from the promises of God would be foolish. But we can safely, securely, and confidently give up everything that the world might have to offer us in the now to serve Christ because we have better promises for eternity. We have promises that God is going to honor that. We have promises that he approves of us, that he's going to provide for us so that when we give up everything, we will not be without anything. In fact, he will give us all things that we need. And so we model the cross to our neighbors and our friends and our spouses and children. And we do this when we die to ourselves like Christ has died for us. We model the radical love of God when we lower ourselves to the ground, when we forsake our own glory. And this, God says, is when you'll find real life. That's the promise, that, that this is when we realize the end to which we were created. Like God has created all of us and he's put in the depths of our bodies and souls a, a, an end to which we were created. 
right? Like, like a hammer is created to drive nails. So God has created us for loving, sacrificial service to him and others in all of our days. That's why we were made. And when we use our bodies and our life and our time for any other means, then, then it's like trying to screw something in with a hammer, right? Like, but when we live into the identity that God has given us to be sacrificial, to be loving, to be humble, to serve God at everything, then we find our purpose. There's nothing more human than to live the way God has made you to live. Humbly, sacrificially, and lovingly. There's a warning in the passage that follows what we've already read, and it's another teaching at the dinner party of the Pharisees. And for the sake of time, I'll paraphrase it, but it's this parable where Jesus says that a man has he's created this big banquet and, and he's invited all these guests. And, and he says, come, for the banquet is ready. And, and all of these guests that he's been inviting for, for a long time, they all have things going on that prevent them to come. One of them has livestock to attend to. One of them has a family matter to attend to. One of them is, is busy doing something else. And they say, I, you know, can I, can I be excused? And so the, the master of this party, he, he goes to his servant and he says, go out to the street and just start inviting people. Invite the homeless and the lame and the blind. And invite everyone, but my banquet will be full. I will not have an empty seat. And, and it's about the kingdom of God. Jesus is warning these Pharisees that for, for generation upon generation, God has been inviting the people of Israel to participate in his banquet. And and that those who have been invited to the feast but have taken up their own concerns, they'll end up failing to participate in the feast. They, they've got other things going on. They've got other kingdoms to which they are attending. And so they're opting out of this great feast that the host is holding. They know the promises of God to redeem the people. They know the teachings uh, about the Messiah. They know the law. And yet they're so busy pursuing their own glory and their own honor that when the very Son of God, the Messiah for whom they've been waiting, is with them in person at a dinner party, they're missing it. They're missing it. They're, they're too busy. They're too concerned with, with their own affairs. This is a warning for us as well. Let us not be too concerned with our own affairs to miss out on what God is inviting us to participate in. Brothers and sisters, and for those of you who have yet to trust in Christ, don't, don't miss the invitation. Don't spend your decades being so concerned with your career or your schedule or your health or, or the ways other, others perceive you that, that when your decades are over, you've missed what life was about and what God had since your birth been inviting you to participate in. See, those who, who seek their own glory and their own honor, their own kingdoms, they end up having no seat at the heavenly banquet. They have received their glory. They've chosen something else. And yet, the promise of the parable is that their seats will be filled. It will be filled by those who with humility and love receive the grace and the promises and the call of God. God will fill his house. And he's inviting you 
to join him. So will you die to yourself that you might have one of the seats? Because in eternity, all of the seats at God's table are seats of immense honor and glory because they're seats at God's table. That's the glory, that's the honor, is that we get to feast with God forever. We get to participate in his household forever. We get to participate in his work even now. He's given us a sign of this heavenly banquet feast. He's given us a sign of that table, and, and we observe it every week. So let's examine ourselves in prayer, humble ourselves before the mighty and merciful hand of God, and receive with gladness the bread of God's kingdom. Let's pray.